0: Hello, I'm John Steele of Café Direct and this is the Building Better Business podcast. A podcast that examines how business can and needs to be more than just making money. Unraveling how we create new business models to better serve our communities and the environment. This really is the future of how we'll do business and how we can all play a part. Our guest this week is Peter Holbrook, CEO of Social Enterprise UK. An organisation that works to promote social enterprise as a model for changing both business and society. Peter has had a fascinating career working at Oxfam, Greenpeace, and other charities. And now campaigns for economic change. Peter advocates business models that consider all of its stakeholders and the environment. How do you define social enterprise, Peter?
1: For me, it's principally about three things. These are businesses first and foremost, but they're businesses with three fundamental differences. And they're the three Ps really: profit, purpose, and power. In terms of purpose, social businesses, social enterprises are purposed to tackle some of the world's, you know, most intransigent and difficult and complex problems, or indeed local community issues, but, but they have that purpose written into their rules and into their constitutions the second one is profit what do they do with their money if they make money what happens to it and it's not there to serve the the needs of individual people in terms of making uh, wealthy people wealthier you know profit is repurposed to further that social mission and so any profit in the business is used for the benefit of many many people and in line with that primary purpose and then the third thing is power And I think this is the really interesting bit. And this is the the bit that conventional businesses struggle with a bit more, I think. And that's kind of who controls the business. Where does the power sit within the business? And social enterprises, you know, have a social model of ownership. So they can be owned by social investors. They can be owned by workers. They can be owned by beneficiaries. The best ones, in my view, are owned by, you know, a mixture of those different stakeholders. But they are not simply owned by shareholders that are seeking to kind of get a maximum return on their investments. They are owned, uh, you know, consistently uh in the spirit of their social purpose and so beneficiaries employees social investors communities themselves other uh, institutions or charities can participate in those social ownership models
0: wow i'm glad i asked the other thing that we ought to ask you about i mean because you are the ceo of social enterprise uk talk to us a little bit about se uk
1: Okay. Well, Social Enterprise UK is a membership association. It's a trade body for social enterprises, cooperatives, mutual businesses, uh, and those that want to support them. But much more than that, we are also, I think, a uh, campaigning Uh, organization. We campaign for changes in uh, the economic systems and structures that keep things as they are. We want a more enlightened form of of trade and business to uh, evolve and manifest. And so we campaign, we work for our members to increase market share, to increase visibility of social enterprises and what they do. We of course undertake things like research and we do develop policy. We work with governments, local authorities, mayors around the country, governments overseas, to try and embed policies uh, and legislative changes that will really help accelerate the growth of these environmental and social models of business. Because it feels to
0: me it's like a movement.
1: We have definitely created some movement. Whether we are a movement yet, I'm still yet to really feel as if I can declare that, you know, we we are in the midst of an absolute kind of evolution or revolution. Progress is constant, it's unsteady, but I'm much, much, much more ambitious for how we can accelerate the growth of this sector and genuinely create a movement.
0: Bring it to life for me. Give me some examples of what some of these inspirational social enterprises do.
1: Oh, well, it's like, you know, trying to pick your favourite child. (laughs) It's not easy to do that, right? But I mean, I, I... I particularly love what Susan Actmel is doing with Homes for Good up in Scotland. She's built a, an incredible portfolio of, of homes using, you know, traditional models of kind of investment to, to buy those homes. And we have a, an absolutely chronic shortage of accessible, affordable homes for people in this country. So Susan, as a very single-minded and very capable entrepreneur, has built up a social enterprise which does really work with those people that really struggle to access secure, high-quality accommodation. Uh, And it is an absolute kind of launchpad for them to build independent, sustainable, secure lives. You know, without housing, any of us are going to struggle to keep our jobs, to bring up healthy, happy families. You know, it's such a fundamental, basic human need and right, in my view, that to see social enterprises, you know, achieving uh, and developing models that are ultimately replicable uh, right across the country and across the world is it, just fantastic. And, and it's making such an incredible difference to thousands of people's lives. I've always considered myself to be an environmentalist. Mm-hmm. And so the, the next one that I will mention is the people behind that make my wallet and and. You know this is elvis and cressy i've known them both for for many many years and they make incredible products and none of their raw material comes from new raw materials it's all repurposed and recycled from products that would otherwise have ended up in landfill and they make the most outstanding high quality bags handbags belts wallets cufflinks I've, i'm actually also wearing a cufflink somewhere but uh use oh, as well you know, inc- yeah. incredible product yeah. Very, very successful actually in terms of global sales. Really at the cutting edge of demonstrating how you can create high quality products that people really, really want without creating any negative uh, environmental impact they distribute more than 50% of their profits to a whole variety of different social causes and they keep on diversifying and diversifying and building and building and growing and their impact is extraordinary Uh, and their reputation is you know genuinely so richly deserved Um, another great business but there are lots look my jacket let me just my jacket uh, is made in a collaboration between the Circle Collective and London College of Fashion and Downview Women's Prison And the London College of Fashion are designing uh, things like the jacket. The women in prison are learning new skills that will lead to employment upon release from prison and are creating this product. Circle Collective have a shop in Lewisham Shopping Centre. And their whole purpose is around training literally hundreds and hundreds of young people to be job ready. Above this incredible and beautiful skate shop where they sell the most kind of like, you know, on fleek clothing. They also have uh, an academy where they train young people in Lewisham to to become job ready. So the whole supply chain in the creation of this jacket is is simply awe-inspiring. And I could go on. There are some incredible organisations working with refugees. Another real issue at the moment that I think is still underreported in many respects. You've got people like uh, Birdsong, Fat Maces, Love Welcomes, all working with refugees and migrants to to give them uh, a step up uh, into new independent lives and livelihoods, wherever they may be.
0: I mean, Elvis and Cressy, I think um, a fabulous example, because it's also such a commercial success, isn't it, in terms of being able to offer to everybody something that's better than its competitors but the way it's done is profound it's just wonderful.
1: This has to be the future of business and I'm delighted that there are 100,000 of these businesses currently trading in the UK alone and many many more internationally but yeah this is absolutely a model that that can give us hope for the future.
0: I did a little lecture at Imperial College and I was talking about social enterprise um, and the guy said isn't it frustrating that Everybody sees it as the exception and not the norm and um, that is the movement that is required isn't it really?
1: Well sometimes we have to imagine things that might seem unimaginable actually and repurposing the entirety of the global economy to serve people you know would be a bold and brave step but I think there's an inevitability about it John because I can't see other paths that actually get us through the the complex and multiple challenges we currently face. We need a massive redistribution of wealth if we're going to overcome things like the climate crisis and the lack of uh, habitat uh, and biodiversity loss. Um, we're going to need you know, a huge redistribution of power and wealth. Truth be told, it's not an easy message to sell to, to every government or to every group of people, but in my view you know, that is what is required to overcome the the, the biggest challenges that we face uh, as a species right
0: now. Where I look at things, I've been really impressed with the whole bi social campaign, because that is, that is going into organisations and that aren't, you know, SUK members, I think, and then it's, it's really getting them to engage with social enterprise. But t- tell us a bit more about that rather than me try and make it up.
1: We have a very, very time-limited opportunity, really, to significantly change course. And we need to build relationships and collaborations uh, with with other organisations. We cannot solve the world's problems as a community of social enterprises alone. So we need these partnerships. And the bi-social Corporate Challenge, to which you've you've kind of referenced and mentioned, is a collaboration currently with 30 uh, large multinational businesses, mostly, from the likes of Johnson & Johnson to some of the large banks, Building and construction companies like um, Weights and Amy, telecommunications businesses like Siemens, all coming together and saying part of our strategy to improve our own social and environmental performance is about working through and with social enterprises in our supply chains and really, really supporting uh, them to become supply chain ready for us. So really part of our job at SEUK is to create you know, opportunities for social enterprises to grow and thrive. Uh, The Bisocial Corporate Challenge allows social enterprises to build relationships with very, very large multinational businesses, sell more products and goods into their supply chains, and as a consequence, grow their own impact and their own sustainability. So it's a win-win-win. And up to date, John, I think this year hit £155 million of, of sales between corporate partners and Uh, social enterprises. And our target is a billion pounds. I should say our first target is a billion pounds. So we're getting closer and closer to that figure. And all the while, we're getting more and more businesses joined by social corporate challenge. And we're getting more social enterprises uh, ready to fulfill those supply chain needs.
0: Wow. What really needs to change? What would you say to anybody listening to this that really needs to change and change fast?
1: Businesses need to change. They, They need to be able to displace their current Primary uh, expectations around increasing shareholder value, pretty much at any cost—that's that—and that, uh, any way that's legal. They they need to recognise that our collective interests are served by also meeting the needs of people, and indeed, you know, the environment upon which we all <laughs> rely and 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 depend. So those two things, principally. I mean, w- we have to get large businesses to repurpose. In my view. I also believe that the instruments of capitalism, be that company law, finance, all of the different instruments and things that exist in the ecosystem to propel business and to enable businesses to trade and grow and scale, also need to, to probably be uh, reviewed and revised in order to meet the needs of our current world, right? I think when those instruments were designed, most of them, when businesses were principally created, when company law was developed. Our needs were very different and it was about driving wealth. Wealth was the route to taking people out of poverty. There's still a long way to go in terms of some of that. However, you know, there are much, much more urgent challenges um, that threaten all of our collective uh, interests and they also now need to be uh, recognised and built into the systems that propel business and our economic fortunes.
0: What advice do you give to people who want to set up a business um, to set up a social enterprise?
1: Look, go for it. I was bold enough to do that in in my late late 20s. It was the most uh, exhilarating and frightening experience that I kind of probably ever undertook Like running a business it, it is such an incredible kind of privilege in some respects because you learn so much stuff that you never never necessarily had any idea about you get this incredible opportunity to learn everything from finance to insurance to HR uh to relationships with banks to relationships with suppliers uh you get the the, the wonderful insights about you know filing annual company returns <laughs> <laughs> tax um, a million things and and honestly I don't think there's ever been a period in my life where I would absorbed as much and learned so much and my reflection on that is start a social enterprise because what you soon learn in business is that you can afford to fail actually if you don't gamble everything and you mitigate risks and you take thoughtful and considered decisions when you start a business or indeed a social business then actually you can allow yourself to, to learn on the job you in fact you have to And it's a thrilling experience to to go on. To set up a business that serves the needs of other people has also given me something that I never really appreciated. And that's this kind of currency that we don't really talk about. It's given me a route into life that gives my life purpose. It feeds my soul. It, It makes my heart grow. It gives me empathy. It's made me a better human. I've learned not just about business, but I've learned about people and I've learned about society and I've learned about injustice and I've learned about how you, you tackle injustice and how you change things around you. And that experience that starting a social business has afforded me has utterly transformed my own life.
0: I came from outside of the sector. And, you know, doing the work I do in the way that we you know, we do work as a, as a social enterprise... There's no other way of living your life. I mean, it is the most incredible thing. It is the most, it gets you thinking about things. It it gives you more depth to your life, doesn't it? It gives you presence. It's like a really important discovery. So I think the way you've described it is fabulous.
1: I just want other people to to understand this, that, you know, it is not some sort of kind of moral imperative that means you you give something up you gain so much more. That's the reason why I'm so passionate about this is that the more people discover it, the the more people realise actually that simply the pursuit of more and more kind of salary and and income never feeds your soul. Doing something with genuine purpose that gives you genuine insight, that allows you to walk with people that you may have never walked with uh, in other circumstances is one of the greatest treasures that you can discover. And if only more people discovered it, the world would be a kinder, more thoughtful, more empathetic
0: place. It is an incredibly positive thing. I think it's a, a thing for everybody to discover. And uh, you don't look back, do you? I mean, you, you're just not. It's, there's no point uh, at all. No. You've worked in some incredible places, you know, in, in addition to setting up your own business. And you work with Greenpeace. You work with Oxfam. Uh, with, with Oxfam and international development, how do you see the changes in the international development space over the last 10 years or so?
1: When I worked in the charity sector what I think I recognised and which is what propelled me into social enterprise was that most charities have been established to deal with a very kind of single issue or, or very sector specific kind of agenda and it used to frustrate me having worked at Greenpeace and worked at Oxfam. Oxfam was you know, kind of obsessed around the needs of, of, of the poorest people in the world. Greenpeace was obsessed about protecting the, the natural environment. And at that point, there was less recognition about the intersection and the interdependence of both of those issues. And I quite quickly, I think, you know, probably in the 1980s, worked out that actually these problems can only be solved if we take a whole kind of economic approach. Um, you can't simply resolve poverty based on models of charitable intervention in my view neither can you expect the environment to be protected without changing the economic structures and, and systems that, that keep business exploiting it in an unsustainable fashion so that's what led me to to kind of kind of economic reform and economic change and i think and i well i know in some respects because i now know i'm fortunate enough to know the people that run both of those organizations is that that is widely understood now that Actually, we cannot obsess about a particular issue, however important that issue may be, without understanding the root cause of those issues. And and every time you you start exploring the root causes of whether it be recidivism or homelessness or poverty in the developing world or environmental degradation, you come back, in my view, to the economic systems and structures that keep things as they are. And and often it is the, the, the way we do business and the how we do business that we keep on coming back to. And that's why I've ended up where I am. And that's why I think Oxfam are becoming more interested in models of social enterprise as a uh, a model of economic development that they can support. And why organisations that are representing kind of environmental protection are also recognising that we need a kind of an economic systems change in order to really, really preserve and protect the environment in the long term.
0: The point on climate change that we just touched on in terms of talking about Oxfam and Greenpeace what's your advice to all business uh, owners and business leaders on climate change
1: my message is like get serious I think Greta Thunberg did it a lot lot better than I could you know enough of the blah 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 I mean I've been working on this issue around climate change biodiversity habitat loss since the late 1980s right I have seen a miserable amount of progress over those 30 years (laughs) Um, it's been unforgivable. What are we here to do, right? I mean, I I get really frustrated, actually, when I see people being rewarded for great leadership. And, And for me, great leadership is really stepping up and really being kind of honest to yourself and honest to your stakeholders about the changes that we need to see. And we have to, as I've said to you before in this podcast and prior to this podcast, we have to have ambition that matches the challenge. And actually, enough people aren't standing up and calling out their own companies for their unsustainable practices. People are not recognising the extent of change that is actually required. And people know it because I meet a lot of these top CEOs a lot of the time. And what, what is really frustrating to me is that in private, they'll acknowledge the extent of change that's required and how far away their own businesses are from it, but then they'll get in front of the podium and they'll pretend that they're doing all the right things, that the world is safe in their hands. Well, let me tell you, it's not. We need a radical shift in the way that we do business if we've got any chance of tackling the urgent challenges that we face. And climate change, of course, is obviously the, 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 one of the biggest ones. Uh, but I think there's a chance we might just do it. we we'll are probably not hit the 1.5 degree target. We probably won't even hit the two degree target. But the biggest challenge facing humanity at the moment, in my view, alongside climate change, is inequality. And no one is willing to call that out. And that does require a radical reform of of capitalism as we know it.
0: Brilliantly said, because they're both the, the issues of this species, aren't they? Both of them.
1: Inequality drives environmental degradation. Again, a bit like that single-issue stuff. We can't separate the two. You know, there are still 50% of the world's population living on less than 10000 dollars a year. We've got, you know, people like Elon Musk trying to extend his own life so he can spend a slightly bigger fraction of his extraordinary wealth, you know, which rivals kind of the wealth of whole countries, you know. And more so, I mean, it's extraordinary. And we can't have system based on philanthropy. We can't just expect these people to to do the right thing because history tells us on the whole they don't. Some do and they're to be celebrated and recognised and you know brilliant but on the whole you know redistribution of wealth and power does not happen by itself. So let's do it peacefully and let's do it in a thoughtful and democratic way you know, rather than waiting for kind of the inevitable, which is kind of economic collapse alongside environmental collapse and further social collapse. I mean, come on.
0: It's getting to the point where it's infuriating so many of us and we all need to recognise that it's ours, but we also need to recognise that we have to find the system change that we require as well, don't we? Because otherwise the frustration is there for, for us if we're not careful.
1: Well, I think we're all beginning to see it, right? There is so much division in society and you can, you know, identify that both geographically in terms of age, you know, in terms of racial ethnicities, uh, faith, you know, we are beginning to see more and more cracks. And those cracks affect us all and they affect us deeply and they affect our quality and experience of life. You know, let's try and heal the divisions within our society and let's understand the best route to do so and let's let's get on and do that alongside me all the other challenges we've, we've we've still got to get serious about. there is a lot of work to be done. I always think back to actually you know great times of crisis in our world in in our recent history even, and how you know a sense of collectivism has been able to be utilized to bring about really significant change so at the time of the first world war, this country was facing another great crisis, and business leaders almost on a voluntary basis, started to repurpose their businesses in order to support the war effort. We are facing a much, much greater crisis. And yet businesses continue to operate pretty much as usual. They might tell you that on the whole, that they are making great steps towards environmental sustainability and protecting our biodiversity and empowering women and supporting poor people, but actually look under the bonnet and the system is pretty much unaltered in a hundred years. We need to start changing the machinery of of the economy if we've got any chance, really, of of navigating all of the the challenges we face.
0: You're a friend of the Nobel Peace Laureate mohammed Yunus. Now, you know, can you tell us a little bit about Mohammed and you know how you got to know him?
1: Well, honestly, he's such an amazing man, and he's very, very humble and full of humility. And he's like the sort of person that you know, one day I hope I might become a little bit more like. He set up Grameen when I was five years old. So in 1976, which is a a bank in Bangladesh, It operates beyond Bangladesh now, it even has branches in the United States now. But he started out with a little notion. Uh, and that notion was to, first of all, to take a worm eyes view of the poor and understand the systems and structures that kept them poor. And he realised, I think, at an early age that charity was not Meeting the needs of these people and actually providing them with finance capital would probably be a much much more effective route to take themselves out of poverty. Uh, and so, in 1983, I think it was, uh, Grameen became a, a, a proper regulated bank, and it's grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. Maybe as many as you know, 95% of its borrowers are women, and particularly in you know that part of South Asia, women. Uh, have a very, very important role uh, within community, within society, within family, but are often the ones that, that don't have control of the finance. So he absolutely decided that he wanted to lend money at affordable rates, without the fear traditionally associated with the sorts of loan sharks that operate in those communities. Affordable interest rates... And and incredibly, you know, I think now there's well over kind of 10 million people that Grameen lend to directly. 99.6% repayment rate. So only a 0.4% failure rate, which is absolutely incredible. The reason banks don't lend to poor people is because they consider the risk too great. Mohammed Yunus has, has done this and has taken millions and millions and millions of families out of poverty through being a social entrepreneur, by setting up a social enterprise and successfully scaling and growing it to the point whereby I think people like the United Nations have supported the initiative and there are now many other similar initiatives operating right across different countries. 100 million people have been lent £25 billion of money and it's been one of the most effective tools to lift people out of poverty. And this guy is incredibly humble. Most people don't know who he is. People should know who he is, which is why he's one of my kind of heroes. And through my job at Social Enterprise UK, I got to meet him. We ended up doing some incredible trips together. I uh, used to be the chair of the Social Enterprise World Forum. So I took him to a, a, an international event that I was uh, organising in Milan. Uh, I then got the opportunity to take him out to uh, Myanmar to meet Aung San Su Chi. Uh, and that was an incredible trip uh, I've taken uh, him to to other places <laughs> to Naples to meet uh you know young Italian poor people and I've brought him to London and he's spoken at our events and I've taken him to Parliament to speak to Parliament on a couple of occasions and we've just become I don't know whether he considers me a friend but I consider him to be a friend of mine now <laughs> after those trips and after those sorts of journeys and knowing what he's done and how he's done what he's done and he's got this great I don't know this great kind of aura around him he doesn't get angry with people he's very very patient he's very very humble and he's a fabulous man and everyone should know who he is right
0: well and that is changing the system isn't it that is saying you can change it and be phenomenally successful and impactful and you know that is just really exciting isn't it because it can be done it can be done
1: And that's probably why people don't know about Muhammad Yunus
0: because, you know, the system doesn't want you to know that it can
1: be done. And it can be done and it can be done in every single industry. Wherever you see an extractive, exploitative kind of business model take hold, you can find a better way of doing it. And that's what Yunus has has taught us, really. Uh, And all those assumptions about don't trust the poor, don't trust the poor, you can't trust the poor. We know if people living in poverty are engaged with in the right way, they can be trusted absolutely probably more so than anyone else they have a vested interest in making a go of the few opportunities that they are given 99.6 percent repayment rate for 100 million people that have been lent microfinance loans
0: thank you peter it is always entertaining and enlightening speaking with you hope you can join us next time on building better business